Well, I appreciate uh, Blake having us sing that song uh, to prepare our hearts for our time in the Word this morning. We're going to be back in the Gospel of John, John chapter 10, that uh, very familiar uh, text, the parable of the Good Shepherd. Um, Jesus Christ is called a lot of things in the Scriptures, but perhaps His most well-known and well-loved title is the Good Shepherd, the Good Shepherd. I don't know how you respond to that title, the Good Shepherd, but on the surface, it seems to me that good is inappropriate, it's inadequate to describe God himself. In human form, just, just good? Is that all you got? Is good? You're a good shepherd? I mean, obviously, he's, he's, he's much more than just good. At least the writer of Hebrews gave Jesus a little more credit by calling him the great shepherd in Hebrews chapter 13. Peter called him the chief shepherd, but Jesus just called himself the good shepherd. Well, like every other passage in the Bible, the context is king. The context, both culturally, the cultural context and the textual context, where this is found in the text of Scripture, is really the key to understanding the significance of this seemingly unbefitting title that Jesus gave himself, the Good Shepherd. Now, William Barclay, a famous commentator of old, said this, that the picture of the shepherd is deeply woven into the language and the imagery of the Bible. That should come as no surprise because during the time when the Bible was written, everyone was familiar with the idea of shepherding. Sheep were everywhere, shepherds were everywhere, everywhere you turned. You could see this, this imagery all around you on the hillsides. And so shepherding was an integral part of the agrarian culture in Palestine, both Old and New Testament. And some of the most famous and familiar passages in the Bible use the imagery of a shepherd. In the Old Testament, God was likened to a shepherd over Israel, as well as all those whom he called and raised up to lead his people, whether that was a, the patriarchs, the, the prophets, the priests, the kings, they were all likened to as shepherds. We just sang a song based on probably the most familiar uh, passage in all of the Bible about the Lord being our shepherd, right? Psalm 23, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 77, 20, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So he raised up Moses and to be the shepherd of the people of Israel. Psalm 78, verse 70, he also chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes with suckling lambs. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. Interesting, uh, many of God's best leaders, Moses and David, for instance, were shepherds by trade. And so they, they understood the whole idea of shepherding sheep. And so God says, there's no one better to shepherd my sheep, my people, than shepherds. Psalm 95, verse 6, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Isaiah 40, verse 11, Like a shepherd, He will tend His flock. In His arm, He will gather the lambs and carry them in His bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. And so we see just the tenderness and the, the kindness and the care that, that Jesus, or that, excuse me, that God has for his people or had in the, for his people in the Old Testament. However, that picture of this gentle, faithful shepherd is, is, is shattered a couple times uh, in, in the Old Testament. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 1, God says, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them and they will tend them and they will not be afraid any longer nor be terrified nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. And so God was rebuking 
the men, the, the prophets and kings that he had raised up and even the priests over Israel, they were not shepherding the flock of God well. Take your Bibles and turn to Ezekiel chapter 34. This is probably the premier rebuke in all of the Old Testament of bad shepherding. And uh, I want us to read this because it'll just, I really think that what Jesus says in John chapter 10 uh, is really set in with this as its backdrop. And this is a critical background uh, to understand uh, where Jesus was coming from when he called himself the good shepherd. Listen to, to the words of the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 34. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the who? The shepherds of Israel. Again, the kings, the priests, the prophets who were supposedly shepherding the people. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The disease you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth and there was no one to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock excuse me, has become a prey. My flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. And then he talks about the restoration of Israel here, obviously uh, when he uh, restored them to the promised land, and I think also we're going to see a reference to uh, the, the restoration of Israel under the Messiah. For thus says the Lord God, verse 11, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. In other words, you guys blew it. So I'm stepping back in. To be the shepherd, as a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep, and I will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day, and I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in good pasture, and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down and on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest declares the Lord God, I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick, but the fat and and the strong I will destroy, I will feed them with judgment. In other words, everything you fail to do, I will do. Verse 17, as for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and the male goats. Is it too slight a thing for, for you that you should feed in the good pasture, that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pastures? Or that you should drink of the clear waters and you must foul the rest with your feet? Look at verse 20. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and with shoulder and thrust all the weak with your horns until you've scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will deliver my flock and they will no longer be prey, and I will judge between one sheep and another. Now notice verse 23. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, this is interesting because David's already dead when Ezekiel wrote this. So who's he talking about? He's talking about the descendant of David, right? Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Well, there's a couple of other old, with that background, look at Micah chapter 5, verses 2 and two through 4. Micah chapter 5, you're going to have a hard time finding that, right? That's kind of where the pages stick together in the Minor Prophets. Jonah, Micah, 
Micah chapter 2, excuse me, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Here is the prophecy of the birth of this coming shepherd, this coming king in Bethlehem. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from, one, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. So we see a prophecy here of the birth of the Messiah. But then notice Zechariah chapter 13. Just keep going to the right, almost to the end of the Old Testament, right before Malachi. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Here we have the prophecy of the death of the Messiah. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd... God's talking about this one shepherd, right? Ezekiel chapter 34 that he would raise up who would be born in Bethlehem. But notice, awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered and I will turn my hand against the little ones. It's a reference to the crucifixion of Christ. How do we know that? Well, because the New Testament affirms that Jesus was this shepherd that God promised to raise up to lead the nation of Israel. How do we know that? Matthew chapter 2, uh, when the wise men came to find Jesus, and uh, Herod asked the, the, the leaders there in, in, in Matthew chapter 2 to, to discern where this Messiah was to be born, they said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, <clears throat> are by no means least among leaders of Judah, for out of, the, out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Just quotes Micah chapter 5. And then in Mark, notice Mark chapter 14, verse 27. Mark chapter 14, verse 27. This is on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. Because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. So this is when they were going to the Mount of Olives. Jesus said this to his disciples, that, this, that the shepherd was going to be struck down and the sheep would be scattered. He was referring to himself, quoting Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. And so we see how Christ's birth and Christ's death um, fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. And uh, one more passage, just preparing us for John chapter 10 this morning. Look at Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, probably the, one of the most picturesque parables in all the Word of God, all the New Testament, describing Jesus as the shepherd who goes after lost sheep. Luke chapter 15, verse 1, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. What's this guy's problem? And he's, he's hanging out with all the, 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 the ruffians and the, the sinners. And so he told them this parable saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he is found, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then we come to John chapter 10. And uh, we just saw a couple of weeks ago in, in John chapter 9 how John provided an example of one of those lost sheep that Jesus went out after. Remember him? The man who was born blind. And after being miraculously healed by Jesus, the Pharisees who were the religious leaders of Israel at the time, the supposed shepherds of Israel at the time of Christ, they callously confronted this man, they mercilessly interrogated him, and they harshly excommunicated him from Judaism. They just kicked him out. And in chapter 9, verse 35, it says that Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, 
He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And so Jesus searched this guy out. He found him. He took him in. It's as if Jesus said, if if they don't want you, I'll take you. And he graciously rescued this victim of bad shepherding. That's the point. He was a victim of bad shepherding. Some, someone described how the Pharisees handled the man born blind as, quote, a grievous dereliction of duty. In other words, they messed up <laughs> big time. And these self-appointed, self-righteous shepherds of Israel were, were in the habit of mishandling and mistreating God's people. Just remember back in John chapter 8 how they abused and exploited the woman caught in adultery. Remember that? She was just a pawn to them to somehow catch Jesus. And they could care less about this woman's soul. And so these men were responsible for shepherding the flock of God. And guess what? They were doing a bad job. And Jesus let them know that in no uncertain terms. He says in verse 39 of chapter 9, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who may see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? You got it. (laughs) Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin, but since you say we see, your sin remains. And so he confronts them as, as being blind guides. I mean, that's not a good quality if you're a shepherd, right? And your, your job is to lead people and you can't see where you're going. How are you supposed to lead other people where they're to go? And so in, in contrast to the Pharisees who were the latest in a long line of bad shepherds in Israel's history that were rebuked, God rebuked, right? And back in Ezekiel chapter 34, Jesus presented himself as the good shepherd. Bad shepherds, the good shepherd who had been appointed by God, the Father, as the righteous Savior and King, the fulfillment of that Old Testament, those Old Testament prophecies. And so here we are in John chapter 10, and and nowhere is Jesus more vividly and beautifully portrayed as the shepherd of people than here in, in John chapter 10. But again, rather than just thinking about this as some sweet, smaltzy, picture of Jesus, right? We always think of, oh, Jesus is the good shepherd, and we have this picture of him holding a little lamb, and it's so sweet and, and cute, and, and right? This, this, you have to understand that, that Jesus said these things in the midst of a spiritual smackdown with the Pharisees, who he likened to in this passage as thieves, robbers, strangers, and hirelings. I mean, as if he couldn't come up with any other adjectives to describe uh, these bad shepherds. And so he wanted the Pharisees and he wanted his followers to know what made him a better shepherd. I mean, what is, what is so good about our shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the question this morning. What's so good about Jesus as our shepherd? Well, we're going to see three reasons this morning why Jesus is such a good shepherd. Number one, he's a soul-caring shepherd and that he personally calls us by name and lovingly leads us. Secondly, he's a life-giving shepherd. He carefully guards us and abundantly provides us with life. And thirdly, he's a self-sacrificing shepherd in that he willingly lays down his life for us. And again, the Pharisees were the exact opposite of these things. They were soul-stealing strangers. They were life-destroying robbers. And they were self-protecting hirelings. Anything but true shepherds. And so Jesus is presenting himself as the, the true shepherd as that one shepherd that was prophesied in the Old Testament that God would raise up to lead his people. And so first of all, he says that he he describes himself as the soul-caring shepherd in verses one through six, and he shows how he personally calls us by name and lovingly leads us. Look at verse one. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up to some other way, he is a thief and a robber. Again, notice there's no, um, there's no like uh, three days later or in another, at another occasion or at the feast of whatever, right? John purposely 
put Jesus' discourse on the parable of the good shepherd right here, right, to, to, to show the contrast, bad shepherd, good shepherd, right? This is a, chapter 9 is an example of bad shepherding, and now we're going to see an example of good shepherding. So he says, he does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way. He is a thief and a robber. Well, sheep in those days were kept in, in, in these large enclosures, usually made of rocks or stones that were piled up to, to kind of create a, a corral of a sort. And uh, there was one single opening for the sheep to come and go. And shepherds would hire a doorkeeper or a watchman to stand guard at the opening of the pen and not let anyone in they didn't recognize. Because rustlers, sheep rustlers and, and uh, wild animals would try to sneak into the pen and that if they couldn't get in the doorway, they would try jumping or climbing over the walls to steal or eat the sheep. And Jesus likened the Pharisees who were rejecting him to robbers and thieves. And unlike him, he, they had no concern for the welfare of the sheep. They were dangerous imposters who were up to no good. They were what uh, Jesus called in Matthew 7.15, wolves in sheep's clothing. Matthew 7.15, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, we typically get the picture uh, when we read that verse of a wolf dressed up like a sheep, right? And trying to infiltrate the flock. Well, really, the idea there in Matthew 7, 15, when it says these false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, it's literally in shepherd's clothing. That these, that these Pharisees and every false teacher uh, before and after them were, were wolves dressed up like shepherds. That's even more deceiving, right? It's one thing, you might be able to tell another sheep, well, you don't look like a sheep, you look like a little wolf, but a, a guy up here in a suit and tie, right, looks like a shepherd, but he could be a wolf. Verse 2, but he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep, to him the doorkeeper opens. So the shepherd, again, would enter through the doorway, why? Because a doorkeeper, a watchman that he paid to watch the door, recognized him. He goes on in verse 3, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So the picture here, this is interesting. This is not just a, a private pen out in the wilderness where they would keep their, the sheep maybe at night, one shepherd, one flock. This was the idea here. The picture here is a communal corral in a, in a, in a town or a village that was used by multiple shepherds and their flocks. So you had multiple sh uh, flocks inside this one big corral. And so in the morning, each shepherd would come into that corral one by one and call out the sheep of his flock, and he would lead them out to the pasture. And so each shepherd had a, a peculiar way uh, to call his sheep. Uh, probably different noises and different clicks and different things, and he would call whistles, and he'd call his sheep, and they'd recognize that whistle or that click. And, and, and not, not only that, was that each of the sheep had special names. I mean, these sheep, he may be called, hey, Blackie, come over here, hey, Fluffy, hey, Doofus, come over here. You know, whatever the name of the sheep was, he would, he would call them by name. And what a beautiful picture this is. It says he goes ahead of them, excuse me, verse, verse 3, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. One of the application questions in the, in the, in, in the note sheet today is if, based on your spiritual strengths and or your spiritual weaknesses, if God were to give you a nickname, what would it be? Think about that, right? What would he call you? Um, I think knucklehead would fit me pretty well. But uh, I don't know, but something to think about. But the point is that he knows us by name. Revelation 13.8 says that the names of all of Christ's sheep have been written from the foundation of the earth in the book of life. Did you hear that? Written from the foundation of the earth in the book of life. Sometimes you hear preachers and evangelists say that the moment you come to Christ, right, your name is instantly written in the land's book of life. Well, that's bad theology. If, if your name isn't already written in the land's book of life, then you'll never come to Christ. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of the doctrine of election here. God calls everyone 
to turn from their sin and to trust in Christ, but the only ones who will respond to that call, who will hear his voice, are those who God gave to Jesus in eternity past. This is the difference between what's called the universal call and the effectual call. Everyone is called to come to Christ, but the only ones that that call is effective, right, to is those who have been effectually called, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 30, and these whom he predestined, he also, what? Called. And these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice just in the same passage, John chapter 10, verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. John has already highlighted this whole idea of God's electing grace in salvation. John chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that all, of, all that he has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 64, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And so we see God's electing grace here. We'll see it again in John chapter 17. It's over and over again. Jesus is praying on behalf of his disciples, his followers, and saying, Lord, these people that you have given me. It's like you and I are gifts, a gift from God to Jesus. That's how this thing works. We're going to see later on how we just kind of got caught up in this great love relationship between the Father and the Son. We're just the recipients of this. We're just caught, 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 caught up in the middle between God, the Father loving the Son and the Son loving the Father and this, this amazing love relationship between these two members of the Trinity and, and we're right smack dab in the middle of all that love. Notice verse four. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Unlike Western shepherds that you may have seen in our country or in Europe, um, who often drive their sheep from the side or, or from behind and they use sheep dogs to kind of herd them along and drive them. Near Eastern shepherds always lead their flocks. They always walk in front of their flocks in order to, to guide them. And notice it says, when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. This is the only right response to Christ's call is to what? To follow him. And we see here in this, the gospel of this happening, John chapter 1, verse 43, the next day he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip and Jesus said to him, follow me. He was calling him out. Uh, chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Chapter 12, verse 26, just again, this idea of following. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And then, of course, in John 21, you remember when Jesus was talking to Peter, restoring him by the Sea of Galilee, and two times he told Peter, Peter, just follow me. Stop worrying about what's going to happen to other people. Just just follow me. Again, this is is an apt picture of the master discipleship relationship. Paul said, follow me as I follow what? Christ, right? First Peter chapter five, uh, talks, Peter was talking about uh, the elders and how they should lead by example, that they should, um, in first Peter chapter five, verse two, not lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And so Jesus was leading his people. He leads us. We need to follow him, follow his example. Verse five, a stranger, they simply will not follow, 
but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Now, this is interesting because we know that sheep are notoriously stupid, right? That's what they're known for. They're just dumb animals, but they're no dummies when it comes to recognizing the voice of their shepherd. They got that down. And they refuse to follow a strange, unfamiliar voice. There's a lot to say in that verse about discernment. I I think I'm going to do a message next week about that, just just how uh, God gives us discernment as his sheep and that we should know the difference between the voice of a true shepherd and the voice of a stranger. When it comes to the sermons that we listen to and the people we listen to on the radio and the books we read and the, the music we listen to, that we need to have a discerning ear, right? And not just follow anybody and, 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 and do what, what anybody says. We need to only do what Jesus says, what he said in his word. Well, notice verse 6. This is sad. The fi- this figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. Why didn't they understand? Because they weren't his sheep, right? They couldn't hear his voice. They didn't understand. And again, it's just showing how the Pharisees were so dull spiritually that they, they didn't have the spirit of God in them to illuminate them to, to the teaching of Scripture. And so Jesus begins by talking about how he is a soul-caring shepherd who personally calls us by name and lovingly leads us. Secondly, he's a life-giving shepherd And that he carefully guards us and abundantly provides us with life. Notice verse 7. So Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. In other words, Jesus is like, okay, you don't get it? Let me me try it a different way. Let me me go at it from a different angle, okay? Let me say it in another way, and maybe you'll get it then. So Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. This is the third of seven I am statements in John's gospel. In John 6, 35, he said, I am the bread of life. Chapter 8, verse 12 said, I am the light of the world. And now he's saying, I am the door of the sheep. And, and Jesus is kind of switching the metaphor here. He's no longer the shepherd of the sheep, but the door of the sheep. You're like, okay, I'm a little confused. Well, they're really one and the same. Because I think the picture here is no longer that communal corral in the village where a shepherd, shepherds would all kind of pay a doormaster, a doorkeeper, a, a watchman. This is more the private pen on the hillside after a day of grazing and they don't come back necessarily into town. They're going to remain up on the hill and they go into a private pen and when the sheep would return to the fold at night after a day of grazing, the sheep shepherd would stand in the doorway of the pen and he would count and inspect each of the sheep as they entered. And if the sheep was scratched or wounded, the shepherd would anoint them with oil. If the sheep didn't show back up, he would go out after them, right, and go get them and bring them back. And once they were all safely in the pen, the shepherd would then lay down across the doorway so that nothing or no one could come in or go out during the night without him knowing it. And so the the shepherd literally acted as the, what? The door. And again, I think this is a reference here to what Jesus was going to say in John 14, 6, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, what? Comes to the Father, but through me. That Jesus is the doorway, right, into heaven. The only way to get into the Father's fold, right, is through Jesus. Verse 8, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Again, Jesus was referring to all the false messiahs and and deliverers who had ever come before him. Um, They were just thieves and robbers. Uh, This may have also, again, been a reference to the Pharisees. But notice it says that the sheep did not hear him. They they wouldn't listen to him. Why? Because that was a stranger. It was the voice of the the stranger. So they wouldn't follow him. Verse 5 talks about that. Verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. Again, just a, just a, a good basic reminder here that placing our faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved from sin. The only way to be saved from death and hell and receive eternal life is through Jesus Christ. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy 
That's what, that's what the, the bad shepherds had been doing. That's, what, that's a, a good description of, of the Pharisees' ministry, right? They were thieving, they were robbing, they were stealing, they were killing, they were destroying people's lives, damning their souls to hell. He says, I came that they may have life and have it, what? Abundantly. And so Jesus affirmed here the main reason why he came to earth was to save his sheep. To save those who would repent and believe. Christ not only grants us eternal life in heaven, but we are also given abundant life here on earth. This is the, the fringe benefit, right, of being a Christian. It's not just that you get to go to heaven when you die. You get to enjoy the blessings of abundant life here on this earth. And again, that doesn't mean your life will be problem-free. It'll be some kind of painless, blissful existence. But your life will be blessed with true meaning, true purpose, and complete satisfaction in Christ. In other words, you will have the best life possible on this earth. You will enjoy life the way God intended it to be enjoyed. Why? Because... Jesus is a life-giving shepherd. He carefully guards us and abundantly provides us with life. And then thirdly, he goes on here in the remaining verses, verses 11 through 18, to talk about how he's a self-sacrificing shepherd, how he willingly lays down his life for us. Look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. Here's the fourth I am statement in John's gospel. I am the door. Um, of the sheep, and I am the good shepherd. And by calling himself the good shepherd, Jesus was clearly identifying himself as the shepherd of Israel that God had promised to send, right? The Messiah. We've already made that point. And by good here, he says, I am the good shepherd. He was saying that he was a noble and honorable shepherd who was willing to sacrifice his life in the line of duty. Notice what he goes on to say here. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd, what? Lays down his life for the sheep. Which he says three other times. Verse 15, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. Verse 18, he says, I have authority, no, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my initiative. I have authority to lay it down. Two times he says in the verse, and I have authority to take it up again. Amen. So this laying down his life for the sheep, obvious reference here to Christ's substitutionary death on the cross uh, on our behalf, on behalf of his sheep, that he gave his life for us. John said uh, in 1 John 3, 16, this is how he said it there, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And so his loving, selfless, sacrificial attitude stands in stark contrast to, to a hired hand who cares only about himself. Look at verse 12. He who is a hired hand, a hireling, not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. He's got no vested interest in these sheep. They're not his. But that's not the case for Jesus because guess what? We are his. And he's never going to run, right, to protect himself. He's going to do whatever it takes, right, to protect us. And, and being a shepherd was and still is a dangerous job we know that from 1 Samuel 17, uh, when David was um, getting ready to fight Goliath, he recounted some of the experiences he had as a shepherd boy, and he had a run-in with at least one lion and at least one bear. That's a pretty dangerous situation, right? And unlike David and unlike Christ, the Pharisees were unwilling to put their lives on the line to protect God's people, let alone sacrifice any time and energy to save them. They were in spiritual service for what they could get out of it for themselves. They were more concerned about their own lives than the lives of those they were called to lead. And yet Jesus, on the other hand, saw the people of Israel as sheep in grave danger. What does it say in Matthew 9, 36? He saw the sheep 
And, and, and as, as sheep, he saw them and his heart was, went out to them. He had compassion because they were like sheep without a what? Shepherd. That's a, that's a scathing rebuke of the Pharisees, right? They had spiritual leaders, but it was as, as if they didn't. They were without a shepherd. And so here is Jesus who saw us in grave danger, our very lives being threatened by sin, Satan, death, and hell. And so he stepped in the gap and sacrificed his life to save us. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. That word know there is the, the word in the Greek, gnosko, which is the word that is used to imply not just intellectual knowledge, knowing someone intellectually, like, yeah, I know, I know Bob, I know Joe, I know Sally, I know them, right? No, this is, this is the idea of knowing someone intimately, a close intimate relationship. And notice how, how Jesus compared his relationship to his sheep with his relationship to his father. And this is astounding here. I, I can't even get my mind around this, that he, he says here, Jesus says he knows us in the same way he knows his father. Don't think about that too long. Your brain, your brain will explode, right? Wow, that's amazing to think about. Verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. You say, who's that talking about? He's talking about the Gentiles, right? That, that Jesus came not just for the Jews, he came for the Gentiles. And so he was talking about all the Gentiles all over the world who would one day hear the gospel and get saved and become part of the universal church. Paul talks a lot about this in Ephesians chapter uh, 2 and 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, he talks about the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so this original flock of, of Jewish believers, right? We know that at, 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 in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, there was maybe just 120 in the upper room, all Jewish at that time. And, and, and then eventually that small flock of Jewish believers would explode into this, this massive herd of sheep, right? Including the Gentiles. And yet they would be one flock under the good shepherd. And so we see this idea of Jews and Gentiles coming together. Uh, even in Jesus' calls, his commands, uh, his commissions, right? Matthew uh, what, did he, what did he say to, to the disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, right? Mark says that uh, Jesus said to go herald the gospel to all creation. Luke says that he commanded that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. And then look at verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. So the father has a special love for his son because of his willingness to sacrifice even his own life to accomplish the father's will. And so the entire plan of salvation was motivated by the father's love for the son. He wanted to give him a gift, and so he gave him a bride, a, a body of Christ, the body of believers, us, right? And, and the plan of salvation was fulfilled by the son's love for the father. Because he loved the Father so much, he was willing to, to do his will, even to give his life to do his will. And so again, I said this earlier, but the, the, the entire plan of salvation was motivated by the Father's love for the Son and fulfilled by the Son's love for the Father, and we got caught in the middle of it all. What a blessing. Notice what he says here, verse 17, for this reason... The Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. He says it again in verse 18. I have authority to lay it down and have authority to take it up again. What is he talking about here? Yeah, he's talking about the resurrection. The sacrificial death was not the end. His, his resurrection demonstrated that he truly was who he had claimed to be. It was it was kind of like the cherry on top of the Sunday. After everything else he had done, uh, this was kind of this. This sealed the deal. Romans one four. 
that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And so it was like God's stamp of approval on everything he had done. That I told you once that he was, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, and I'm going to say it again. This is ultimate proof that he is. Verse 18, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this commandment I received from my father. This is a very important point, because sometimes people view Jesus as just a tragic martyr, Oh, what a sad tragedy. He got kind of kind of got caught up in the wheels of the political the Jewish and Roman political system and, and how tragic that is. No, that not at all. Christ's death was completely voluntary. His life wasn't taken from him by force or against his will. He willingly gave it up. And John had already made it clear multiple times in his gospel that Jesus deliberately and intentionally avoided being arrested or executed up to this point. Why? Because it wasn't his time. It wasn't his hour. You remember in Matthew 26 when Peter was trying to help out Jesus in the garden, right? When the soldiers came to arrest him. And so Peter's knee-jerk reaction was to what? Draw a sword, right? And defend his master, defend his, his friend. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 52, I love this. Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? A legion, a Roman legion, was 6,000 soldiers. So do the math. Six times 12 equals what? 72,000 angels could have come racing down from heaven to defend Jesus if he wanted him to. But he didn't want him to. Why? Because he was willingly giving his life up for the Lord. I don't know where that song came up with. He could have called 10,000 angels. Somebody didn't do the math right, but... Maybe it didn't fit the song. He could have called 72,000 angels. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't flow as nice. So even 10,000 is pretty cool, but 72 is better. How about John 19 in this same gospel? In John 19, talking about how God, Jesus willfully, willingly gave himself up. In John 19, verse 10, Pilate said, You do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Pilate was getting hacked off that Jesus wasn't going to answer his questions kind of stood there in silence. Verse 11, Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Listen, you, don't, you, don't have a, you can't threaten me with your authority. You got no authority. I gave you your authority. And then, of course, in John 19, verse 30, it says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Right? His spirit wasn't, his life wasn't taken. He gave up his life. And so Jesus was no victim. He was a victor. And the fact that he rose from the dead proves it. And that's what he's talking about here, having not only the authority to give up his life, but also the authority to take it up again. And Jesus had said in, in, in John chapter 5, verse 26, for just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. In other words, uh, Jesus had the power to resurrect himself. And he will resurrect us as well. He has the power to resurrect us. In John chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Not only does he have the power, right, to raise himself up, he has the power to raise you up and me up. Well, look at how this thing wraps up. Typical... Scenario at the end of a little discourse, verse 19, a division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. We're getting used to that, right? This, this division happening, when, when, kind of a mixed reaction. Verse 20, many of them were saying, he has a demon and it's insane. Why do you listen to him? So as we've seen in, in previous chapters, right? This is not the first time that Jesus was accused of being demon-possessed. 
chapter 7, chapter 8, we, we see that reference. Others thought he was insane. And back in Mark chapter 3, uh, Jesus' family showed up and, and they wanted to kind of take him back home because they had thought he had lost his mind. But then look at verse 20, 21. Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? In other words, some were concluding that Christ's works and words prove that God's hand was on this guy. I mean, how, how, how could or would a demon have the power to grant sight to a blind man in a way that so greatly glorified God? A demon wouldn't do that. And so again, we're seeing the different reactions to Christ. Even as we see this morning, every one of you is reacting differently to what you're hearing this morning about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Chuck Swindoll said this. He said, Jesus did not become entrapped in some sticky political web from which he could not extricate himself. Rather, he spun a story of selfless sacrifice so enticing, so enchanting that it would attract people to him for millennia to come. And we, those other sheep, right? That's us who he was talking about. Uh, the other sheep in verse 16, have come into the fold because that 2,000-year-old story stirred us like nothing else, that story of a shepherd so supremely good that nothing stood in the way of his love for his sheep, not even his own life. I trust your heart's been stirred by this 2,000-year-old story that it's enchanted you, and not just enchanted you, but it's granted you repentance and faith and has brought you to a relationship with Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your soul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the joy and the privilege it is to have Christ as our shepherd, this, this shepherd and guardian of our souls who bore in his body on the cross our sin, who, who was willing to to give up his life. He, he didn't just spare, he w- didn't want to spare his life. He, he gave it up for us that we might live for him and follow him. And so Lord, I pray that the, the goodness of our shepherd would just thrill our hearts today, that we would just uh, be so grateful that we don't have a bad shepherd. And Lord, I know that some here have been the product of bad shepherding Over the years, they've been manipulated, they've been exploited, they've not been well cared for, and I pray that whatever, wherever anybody's at this morning, they would ultimately go to you and know that that you will take good care of them, that you'll never mishandle them, you'll never mistreat them, but that you'll only care for their souls and love them to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.